Welcome to Go Additive, where your hosts combine their real-world professional 3D printing experience to deliver valuable opinions that will help you peer behind the curtain of the additive industry. And now, Go Engineers own Tyler Reed and Tate Brown. You couldn't hear that, could you? It, I, but I just judged purely on your reaction because it was the <laughs> same as every other day. Yeah. Yeah, you were talking through the whole intro. That's fine. It works. Oh, man. I cut <laughs> Darren off. How rude. My bad. Yeah. We'll survive. <clears throat> so it's Friday morning. We're cramming this in at pretty much the last minute this week. Why did we do that? <laughs> Busy week. Um, things are, I feel like they're picking up. We had um, some, we are getting brought up to speed on some of the new Stratasys product that's coming out. And I feel like a lot of people are ready to meet in person again. So um, as an application engineer, we take customer meetings pretty often and talk tech on printers. People want to know about them. And, um, we've been doing that virtually and now we're doing it in person. So we had a few in-person meetings and we had a walk-in yesterday, just really. (laughs) And yeah, just an unexpected guy actually from another company that we had been dealing with and just, Hey, I'm here. And so we just, we (laughs) did an impromptu, um, dog and pony show around the, uh, headquarters. Was your initial reaction like, what are you doing here? Uh, you're not supposed to be here. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like, cause he told us what company he was from. And I was like, I swear we just had a meeting with someone from there, uh-huh. which we did. And, uh, it's like, yeah, this is, this is wrapped up already. So yeah, it totally was like that. Well, yeah, you're right. It, meetings are picking up. I think, uh, we talked about traveling to Amug. Soon after that, I feel like we have travel. We could travel every week. It The interest is out there. Yeah. Yeah, I've got a few. Um, my first trip besides AMUG booked end of this month. So I'm hoping, crossing my fingers, things are returning to normal. Oh, so you're traveling before AMUG? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. All right. Yeah. But uh you're at home right now. We're doing we're doing I'm the at recording. Casa. Uh yeah. Recording over Zoom. Which is fun. Which we've practiced this before. We can do this. We're pros now, right? Oh, and speaking of travel, that means the next time we do the pod I'll be on Zoom as well, most likely. Oh, and unless we do it on Friday. Yeah. And we might actually have to do an episode at a mug. I'd love it. That would be I think cool. it'd be fun. That would be cool. Coming to you live. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. So what do we want to get started with? Do we, we want to talk about today, I think. What did you call it? You came up with the title. But the specs. The spec sheet battle. Specs, so, not specs. <laughs> yeah, specs today. So we want to talk about printer specs and just kind of how the the printer game is largely based on what people say they can do and creating ways to achieve a goal to make it appear like the printer is fast or the printer is reliable or whatever that might be. Um, a desirable quality. So we're going to get into that. But prior to that, there has been some news. There's always news. It's been, it feels like less of late because we've had so much over the last couple months. That's true. Uh, the last couple of weeks, I think, have slowed down a bit. So what do you think is the most exciting thing? I, I noticed one thing that what, I thought was what's that? comical. <laughs> I was just looking at some 3d printing stocks some stonks yeah just to just to satisfy some curiosities again i've told you guys i don't i don't actually invest 
not yet anyways, but I am trying to get a feel for the heartbeat of the industry in terms of stocks. And overall, they're taking dives. They're coming back down to earth. I would say that. That's that's a nice way to put it. A major correction over the last month or so across pretty much every company. Although I did read yesterday that uh, ARC bought another like 650,000 nano dimension stocks, probably cost <laughs> averaging down. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Which, I mean, that's yeah. a significant buy. They've, they're really bullish on nano dimension. And uh, ARC is just one of those companies that people watch and follow their lead. And uh, the fact that they're so interested in nano dimension just that piques my interest. But they're buying them at that a discount. That is interesting. They're buying them at a discount versus 30 days ago. So tell me this. When a company puts out an earnings report on you know, their quarterly earnings, mm-hmm. are they accounting for expenditures on acquisitions? Or is it purely based on sales revenue? It is company-wide revenues and expenditures. Okay. So in the case of some of the companies that picked up a couple, they could show significant losses because they acquired one or two companies. Uh, It depends on how they acquired them, right? If it was a cash deal and it was actually paid out, then yeah. If it wasn't paid out, um, or if only like you paid installments, then only the money going out would be on the books at that point. Um, if it's a stock deal, then it wouldn't show as an expenditure in that way. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah, totally. See, I don't know anything, so I'm here for an education and hopefully other people can kind of <laughs> like, man, that Tate's dumb. No. But hey. You know, as long as you're you're learning with me, uh, you know, so, there's a 50 percent chance that I'm 50 percent wrong. <laughs> Someone will write in. Someone for sure will write in if we're super wrong. Yeah. Someone's going to call us out. If that's true, then so far I have a very clean track record because no one to date has written in saying Tyler's wrong. <laughs> So far that you know of, my email's on there too. People talk to me. People actually email you much more often than they email me. (laughs) (laughs) You're intimidating. They're like, man, this guy, at least I can talk to Tate. (laughs) No, it's, it's, uh, I, I, I feel like the feedback we usually get's good other than from our, our guy. Yeah. Internally. Yeah. What are we calling him? He's our. What we don't have a name yet. <laughs> I think Jeb. We should just call him Jeb. Jeb? Yeah. I'm I'm down with that. If we just call him Jeb, <laughs> this Jeb is going to be a character that we are going to talk about often yeah. on this show. Jeb may know who Jeb is. Jeb listens to the show, <laughs> but we're never actually going to tell him that he's Jeb. Yeah. Or she. Or for she. that matter. <clears throat> she could be Jeb. Mm-hmm. Or but they. It, but it is one person. Yep. One specific person. (laughs) So we'll be targeting them from this episode onward with a fake name. Yeah. So speaking of characters, we stumbled across uh, something yesterday, right? (laughs) So one of the bookmarks that I have is just a PDF search in Google for PDFs with the words additive manufacturing or 3D printing. And it's just a way that I kind of reach out into the world and see what's going on. And uh, it's a recent search, so, so it's cool. But I came across a itinerary <laughs> for a conference called Guns and Bitcoin. And it came up in this search because Boom. there was... Two hot topics. Two hot topics. Oh, these guys, uh, I don't... The, the conference just happened last weekend. And so we just missed it. We just missed it. It was in Austin, Texas. And... Uh, we would have been there. <laughs> Oh, yeah, we would have traveled there for sure to go to guns and Bitcoin. And uh, I'm not sure how many attendees 
But actually doing these conferences is a good revenue generator for sure. And especially if you're capitalizing on topics like these, they can be solid revenue generators. But uh, this... So what, what's the subheading for their conference? Oh man, it's for makers it, and dissidents. <laughs> yeah. was it was a freedom, freedom conference for makers and dissidents. Definitely capitalizing on just the current state of the nation and the culture. Yeah. Uh, but one of the topics was 3D printed guns by given by a man that goes by the name of <laughs> Suckboy Tony. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Suckboy. And on the topic of, you know, we were talking about last week, like when you say I'm associated with 3D printing, you on some level feel like you have to explain it. This doesn't help. It, it really doesn't help. <laughs> so we watched a YouTube video of Suckboy Tony um, at the gun range, it right? Was, it was actually from that past event, that, that event oh, last week. It, okay. It I was didn't know that. a small group of people who brought in their 3D printed guns and were shooting them at the event. And I got to say, while I have to respect their ingenuity, those things, they look like Nerf guns. So like they weren't scary looking at all. They were all brightly colored. They were, they looked just like a Nerf gun with like a, these guys were using like standard pipe from hardware stores as, as barrels Dude, for their a, rifles. A and, stock, like a stock made out of pipe and pipe fittings that didn't look all that comfortable. But you're right. They don't look intimidating, but the fact that they look like Nerf guns actually is sort of intimidating it, to me. It's scary in a way. Yeah. Yeah. We thought about having Suckboy Tony on as our first <laughs> guest. Uh, if, man, if he's half as uh, funny as his name, great, great guest. In my experience, uh, these type of people usually disappoint. Just saying. People who have oh. very strong online personas in person, as a general rule, are way less interesting or more introverted. Does that make sense? But a name like Suckboy Tony. Yeah, it's just the psychology it's of not, it. It's not Frank. It's Suckboy. You can be someone online that you are not in person because... A lot of times you're living out this persona that you want to be that you well, don't. Maybe it would be an extension of that. If it could you were be on this show. And, and I could be wrong. I'm just talking in general. I try to keep my expectations low when I meet someone online like that. But he, the ingenuity was there. And I don't research 3D printed guns all that often. I've, I'm aware of like the Liberator and I'm more aware of designs that came out six, seven, eight years ago. But uh, some of these contraptions were cool. Like when he had that uh, extended oh, magazine. Yeah. I thought it oh, go artillery ahead. from like a fanny pack. It was insane. It looked like something out of a Marvel movie, right? Yeah, it was so he had his arm extended with this semi-automatic pistol. Yeah. The pistol had a magazine coming out the bottom. And then that was fed on a somewhat rigid. Uh, the magazine was not your, you know, typical, it, what, six to 10 inch long magazine. The thing twisted. It on, looked it, it, on like a rail, like a roller coaster track. Yeah. Kind of. It looked like an energy it, chain. Uh, so what? an energy chain. Who knows what an energy chain is? <laughs> you do oh know what it is. Goodness. You know what it I is. I think my railroad track analogy was better. Mm, more eh, relatable. More maybe more relatable, yeah. but not as accurate. Okay. Whatever. Do you know what an energy chain is? I just told you I didn't. Mm. I'm offended now. So now I feel dumb. Like you're you're uh I already know I have a complex. Your shape oko. It okay. has a chain oh, yeah, yeah. that carries your cabling. That's they an call energy. that an energy chain. 
Yeah. I, I always called it like drag link. Google and it, it did not look like that. Yeah, to me it did. Okay, way more like a roller coaster because it's rigid. It wasn't like flexible. His arm was like stuck in the position it was in because that's, of his magazine. That's true, but it was somewhat flexible. And I think a lot of it was because of that twist where it was Where stuck. can our listeners find this video? What did you type into YouTube to find this? <laughs> Suckboy um, Tony? No. Let's see. Suckboy Tony shoots. I'm going to try guns. Gun. Bitcoin. Uh, that doesn't quite get you there. It does get you to the page, though. Guns and Bitcoin. Yeah. Is it guns and Bitcoin or is it guns and Bitcoin? Mm. Just the N. Mm. It's guns. It mm. is? Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad we clarified that. Yeah. I was more of just doing that for... <clears throat> That gets you the to the page for the people who put the show on, but it actually doesn't get you to the video that we're talking about. Um, let me just quickly search my history. Interesting results, I'm sure. There are actually quite a few uh, lockpicking lawyer videos. Oh my because gosh. That's something I've been aware of, but I've never sat down and watched, so I watched a few yesterday sounds interesting yeah it's interesting but so uh, did you find no i didn't okay well let's let's uh move on well this is yeah. an interesting topic and maybe we maybe we do an episode later but if any of you know suck boy tony personally shoot us an email <laughs> we're interested <laughs> to learn a little bit about him um but in other news benny buller of Velo 3D was on CNBC. Oh yeah. Just recently did an interview. What do you think of it? Mainstream media. Yeah. Um I thought it was cool. He kind of he mentioned a lot of the things that we had talked about previously. Um I did learn one thing though. What's that? Um I guess Elon Musk made an offer to buy bellow at some point and benny turned down that's exciting yeah why do you think he would turn down something like that that seems like a pretty good deal spacex well it's hard to say um we could speculate if it were me and i was building a company that i thought had huge potential and uh was meant to serve a need to like a broad global audience, I would be really hesitant to sell too early to an organization that is going to capture that technology and keep it close to them. Hoard it. Yeah. So that it. nobody can use it. It would be a very strong competitive advantage, I would say. So if you want to find that more information, uh, it's on CNBC and just type in CNBC, Benny Buller. Yeah. Right. Yep. He's talking about going public, right? Yep. Through the SPAC. And he actually answers the question um, about the Elon Musk situation. So (laughs) what did he say? He said they're a valued partner. Currently, they really like working with them. They value the partnership. And he... This is my summary or my take, but it seemed like he was he's more anxious to get this in the hands of the world over. Yeah. Versus just one company. Yeah. So he seems really passionate about the technology and the solution uh, versus just making a quick buck. So I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, I think so, too. Um, I was also watching some YouTube videos last night about Starlink. Do you know much about this? No. Starlink is the satellite internet offering that SpaceX has and is out in beta right now and growing. It's uh, pretty fascinating. But I think what's most fascinating is their plan and how it is a... uh, It actually drives a lot of the value of SpaceX because SpaceX is in the business of putting things into space, right? Yeah. Cargo in event and humans. Now they, they took two NASA astronauts to ISS. 
a while back. Um, but you need, I mean, to generate revenue, you want to put a lot of things in space. And Starlink is that. They've requested up to put up to up to 40,000 satellites into orbit, which is like four over 4x the number of satellites we currently have up in space. Yeah. Are they going to need a traffic director up there anytime yeah. soon? Yeah, probably. You want to apply for that? Yeah. <laughs> I'll be up there with the little uh, lightsaber wands <laughs> directing. Yeah. Uh, that's interesting. I I didn't know. Um, it doesn't surprise me. Yeah. So when you're looking at SpaceX as a company, the value of it is actually strongly tied to the success of Starlink. Makes sense. Yeah. It's interesting. And then you've also got Tesla on the other end. So true. It makes sense why Elon would want the technology. Uh, you're talking about Velo. Yeah. 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 But, uh, I think... Uh, well, rocketry and propulsion is something I've taken more and more interest in, I would say, in the past few months because of the application studies and and association with Velo. I've been reading more about videos it. I came across rocket engines. Oh, yeah, it's it's pretty fascinating. And I grew up building model rockets. I'm sure you did, too. Oh, yeah. And they're Can fun. I tell a story about one. Yeah, do it. That would never fly today, literally, no pun intended. Um, I had this sweet little uh, rocket and it had a clear tube section and it was designed to put things in to send them into to space, mm-hmm. as it were. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you buy those like 50 cent rocket engines at the local toy store or whatever. What that's, were they? That's what I, did. I can't remember. My heck, I, they were cheap though. I, I remember you could get a whole pack for like four or five bucks. And yeah, SDs. anyway, that, that clear tube, I think part of their marketing was like a grasshopper in the tube, but you would put, you would put bugs in there and send them into space. And yeah, they had a little parachute, you know, and they would typically survive. But anyway, you know, that wouldn't fly today. You could not throw a grasshopper in, in a rocket and send it into space. Well, there's precedent for it. You know that, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The Russians did it. The U.S. sent mice, for sure. And uh, they sent a dog, too. A, a dog, yeah. Mm. Mm. Um, I may or may not have also experimented with grasshoppers. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but there is another YouTube channel that I think is worth exploring. If you're interested in this topic, it's called Copenhagen Suborbitals. And it is a crowdfunded rocket project. It's it, And we're talking about real rockets at this point. Are these uh, going to be um, have human occupants? No, it's not of that Spe- size. But it speaking is speaking of experiments. And grasshoppers. It it won't it won't carry human cargo, but it is okay. will be large enough to carry cargo. I'm not super familiar with it, but it goes they go through the I mean, they're uploading continuously videos uh, and they show their work. They're showing the design of the propulsion system, they're showing their prototyping, they're showing their testing. It is very, very in-depth. That's cool. It is cool. It's cool to have access to that information. Yeah. They just, uh, a week ago, they uploaded a video about their fuel injectors, which are printed. Nice. So this is the last bit of casual news I just thought of because we're relating it to, to space. But I guess uh, NASA was just awarding some grants. Oh, yeah. And money to a bunch of companies that it's all about additive. So um, it seemed like I think there were 10 printing operations or goals that they want to achieve. So there's 10 different companies with these different goals uh, associated to each of these goals. And 
it seemed like most of them had to do with utilizing space dust to either create like um, building blocks like bricks or cement, concrete, that type of thing, turning that into an additive solution. So basically you're using the raw materials available on the moon to start building uh, habitable, habitable areas. So uh, that's pretty interesting. That's, Are you looking it up right now? No, I'm trying to fact check us on whether or not the U.S. <laughs> sent a dog into space. And I don't actually think they did. It might not have been the U.S. Someone did it. Well, the Russians I, did for sure. To... The Russians did for sure. Um, Does but that I, surprise you? I don't think that the U.S. sent a dog. They might have sent monkeys. I don't like talking about this. I don't like it. <laughs> the grasshoppers were fine. Now, now I'm just starting to feel guilty. Well... Yeah, remember the story about the the Indian what? monkey? <laughs> oh <my> gosh, <laughs> the alcoholic monkey. So this is off the topic news. Uh, We're halfway into this pod, by the way. Monk, we we a should monkey probably... got life. A monkey got life in prison. The first monkey ever to get life in prison because he was an alcoholic. That's a depressing story. If you're interested, look it up. But that's a let's story not talk where about it. from the title, you're like, oh, that's kind of funny. And then you read it and you're like, ooh, this is really dark. Yeah. After the title, it just gets sadder and sadder. Yeah. All right. Uh, uh, we last should probably. Bit of official news. Okay. Okay. There, there's the, this is the last bit. Stratasys, we've talked a lot about their new uh, technologies and platforms coming out. They are actually finally making their public debut uh, April 28th. So if you're interested in that, it is a live event. It's at 9 a.m. Central Daylight Time here in the U.S. and uh, 4 p.m. Central Europe Time. So if you can, catch it. Should be exciting. And you'll be able to kind of understand the things that we've alluded to in the last few episodes which by the way i think this is episode 18 yeah i think so all right you want to hear something depressing i'm on this animals in space wikipedia page and it has uh, a section landmarks for animals in space the first animal in space is in 1947 and then it goes through these different animals first time in space orbit deep space whatever it's not until 2007 where the landmark is first animal survives exposure to space Oof. so uh i think that these animals if they are not celebrated uh they should be they should be given like the same honors as humans who sacrificed (laughs) i'm serious yeah no i agree why is it taking so long let's do it we should we should build we should design and print a uh a memorial for these different animals. I'm game. Yeah. I'm Let game me too. design it. Okay. Thank you. I'm just kidding. I don't, I don't need <laughs> more things to design. Yeah. All right. So let's, now that we can move on from the depressing news, let's get into the topic of the day. Yeah. 30 minutes into but, it. We're good. Hey, oh. some would say those are the most exciting 30 minutes. Some would. I don't know. Anyway, um, spec sheet printer battle. Let's talk about this. This is, I have opinions here. Okay. For sure. So there's a few things that come to mind when I'm talking about a spec sheet battle. So a lot of times people will try to say, uh, well, they not try. They will say that their hobby grade printer uh, is capable of printing just as fast as an industrial printer. So one of the things that a lot of people like to measure is extrusion speed, right? So if I can make an analogy right now to race cars, extrusion speed is purely linear, right? So we're talking about a drag race. It's how fast can you go in a straight line, right? Yeah. We know with real 3D printing, that nozzle or extruder is, and we're talking FFF right now or FDM, that nozzle or extruder is not traveling in a turns. It, it's moving 
in a lot of different directions. It's not just one straight linear path. So they call going around a circuit track, like a Formula One track. It's not going to be very fast. There's yeah. only going to be a few places it can take advantage of its straight line speed. So, um, you know, we're we're looking for something more like a Ferrari. You know, maybe we don't claim that it's an F1 car, but something that's going to be fast around the entirety of the circuit track through all the different types of corners and that sort of thing. So, um, also one of the things that affects print speed is the layer to layer speed, right? So printers are doing lots of printers do a little bit different things. This is where strategy changes a lot per company. Uh, there might be proprietary strategies involved, but how fast can it go from finishing a layer to beginning the next layer? Uh, obviously when you have hundreds or even thousands of layers stacked on top of each other, just a portion of a second longer per layer adds up. Right. Um, so I actually have seen a few companies that list uh cubic um, build speed. And I think that's, that's very good. It still doesn't quite tell the story, right? Cause they could print a square. Yeah. A cube, a cube. Yeah. On the first topic, what you're talking about is the fact that, uh, these machines are actually spending most of their time in acceleration and deceleration. Exactly. And, yep. and, uh, and X and X and Y are changing simultaneously. So how yep. fast does that happen? How fast does it accelerate and decelerate? So I think what you're alluding to is, and, and I've seen this, there are specs that are reported in a spec sheet that are in all reality irrelevant. And they're meant to uh DC. They're, they're subterfuge, <laughs> right? They're deceptive. Yeah. You know, one that comes to mind often is resolution. And these vendors will use the mechanical resolution of their kinematic chain, meaning what is the resolution of their belt drive, right? And so instead of the resolution being what's the smallest feature that we can print or something related to the actual end result, it is, oh, our stepper motor has 2048 steps and we're using 10 or 20 X micro steps to move a belt that's on a drive, a reduction of five to one. So our resolution is six microns were you just doing the math no that's totally made up but <laughs> it's totally made up but uh it's it's just a good representation of what i've seen in the past where uh, the mechanical resolution is pretty irrelevant because it's orders of magnitude finer than the control that you have over the plastic or people people reporting uh, build times that don't include all of the steps, right? Uh -huh. Just include just yeah. the print step, for example. Right, and that's post-processing. So you're <laughs> varying technologies, right? If you're uh, in a battle of FDM versus SLA, you're trying to make the right decision. Uh, SL or DLP can be faster in some regards. Um, definitely not good to not consider the yeah. fact that you have to wash it, post cure it, that sort of thing. You have to consider the steps you do once you pull the part off the printer. And uh, we're probably guilty of this too, right? Because when we're looking at FDM, we don't necessarily look at the time to remove the support material. It's variable. It depends on uh, your method. We try to acknowledge it. But if something is optional versus required, we talked about this on the post-processing episode, right? If it's required, it should be considered in the time evaluation. And really the spec you're after is not print time, it's time to part. What's your time to part? And you never see that. No, that's you never, never advertised. But you have, so you should ask for it, right? This that's 
I think that's the underlying theme of this is when you are evaluating a printer, like how do you look beyond the spec sheet? Yeah. And I don't, that's a great point. So maybe this, this episode is hopefully just hints into looking beyond the spec sheet or beyond what this advertised speed or any specification, what does it mean to, um, I don't know. Are they just trying to sell you or should I be looking a little deeper? One of the things we do for customers is we print a benchmark. One of the cool things about a benchmark is that someone can send us a part with common geometries, something they deal with often, and they get a real world number from us. They know the build time. This is what the the machine produced this part in. Here's the amount of time we spent in post. um, And they get a feel, a real feel for the number. Cause a lot of people in a meeting, they say, well, how, you know, how fast can you print like a fist sized part? Well, am I actually like, it, it really depends on geometry. Right. And when you see these uh, co- companies listing linear or sorry, not linear, but build speed per hour in cubic inches. Yeah. Are they just building a cube? Are they building that? Uh, so I guess the more turns your print head has to make, the slower that build time is going to be. And depending on the area of each layer, that will drastically change your print speed. So the best thing you can do is ask a company if they're willing, which I don't know if this is common with hobby level printers, uh, but ask a company if they're willing to print it. Or ask someone who owns the printer to print something for you, offer to pay them for the materials and figure out like, right. What's the real world print speed here? Or at least have them run the numbers through their software, but compare the same model across different, uh, different vendors. If speed's important, but it is a, uh, it's a data point, which should be used. Here's another thing that uh, people should ask. Can you use the entire build tray? <laughs> How's that important? Because if they list, oh, well, okay. So say the build tray is significantly bigger than the advertised um, printable area. Does it matter? Because as long as the company advertises the correct build volume, you're, you're saying, but usually the can imp- you actually use the advertised build volume? Yeah, in two ways. Okay. Can I print one single part that fills the entire build envelope? And or, and or, can I fill the entire build envelope with parts? Uh, because different technologies handle this very differently. Like binder jetting, for example, or anything that's bulk centered at the end and has that shrinkage, you have to account for that shrinkage in your part file. So if you have say a five by five by five build envelope, you have to consider that your part gets scaled up 15, 18, 20% when it's printed in a green state. So what's your actual max part size? It's significantly smaller than that. Or if you have a big, bigger build envelope, the technology might not support bigger parts, right? Absolutely. Or in like multi-jet fusion, you know, or DMLS, you have scenarios where you have a square or rectangular build tray, but the recommendation is that you don't put parts in certain areas. Right. So it just won't turn out a good part. So just simply don't make the assumption that, okay, if the build envelope is this big, I can put one giant part in there or I can fill the space. In some cases you can. Not in all cases. So that's we 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 see spec sheets and we start to fill in gaps with assumptions, and that is what vendors want you to do. Like everyone's trying to sell their product, and so they're going to show you specs that paint products in the best light. It's just the reality of commerce, right? And uh, so ask questions. 
ask a lot of questions. It's sad. Just look it's at a sad part of commerce. Yeah, but just uh, and I mean, this is just good advice for every major purchase. Be skeptical of you know the 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 data that that is being reported. Ask yourself why is it being reported this way, and would if I were reporting something, would I report it differently? And if there's a discrepancy there, have them explain that. Yeah. And then judge them based on their uncomfortability. (laughs) (laughs) True. True. But recognize like you might be the first person asking that question too. So if they don't have an answer for you, like (laughs) I would accept like, ah, that's a good question or, you know, that's a good question. Let me follow up on that. That's probably an acceptable answer as long as they come back with an answer. Right. Yeah. I think the biggest thing to take away is look beyond the spec sheet. Um, One of the other things we haven't talked about yet is material capability. Yeah. So when you're putting printers head to head on a spec sheet and you're looking at one versus the other, one may only be capable of two materials while another one's capable of a dozen. Yeah. Or to use my old man terminology, a half a dozen. It's the worst (laughs) phrase ever. Half a dozen. Why not just say six? I've always wondered that. Anyway, Mm. Mm. (laughs) you don't like that? Well, I'm trying to think how that relates to what I was just talking about. Like, why would you choose to use those words? What message (laughs) are you trying to put into my head? (laughs) So anyway, if I'm trying to to put a printer up against a six material printer up against a two material printer on a spec sheet, obviously you choose the six material printer. It gives you more options and materials obviously open up different applications, more applications. What companies don't tell you is that their spec sheet typically has is material dependent. So a lot of, uh, these specs you're getting are based on, say, an easy-to-print material like PLA or um, whichever material they think suits that spec the best. I'm not saying that they vary materials. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying you have to understand that there's going to be differentiations in part quality, reliability per material. Some materials are just harder to work with than others. So, um, you have to take tuning into consideration if you're using a hobby level printer, uh, with Stratasys machines, they, they give you the recipe out of the box. Um, and you don't have to plug those numbers in, you just pop it in. So there are other things to consider on, okay, is it worth me printing in PLA all the time or making the change now to ABS? Is it worth it? Because if it takes you 10 hours to change over, it, it should never take 10 hours, but it could potentially yeah. if you print, if, if you make the changes you think you're supposed to make um, recipe wise, if you're using a hobby level printer to print ABS, you have to print a test print. If it doesn't come out right. You've got to tweak it and make changes. So yeah, a printer may have six materials listed as printable but are they all fast? Are they all reliable? Is the print quality good right. all the time? What What's the expected user experience for all of those materials, right? A good example of this is one of our vendors, Exact Metal. Exact Metal creates this low budget uh, DMLS printer. And if you go to their website, you see several materials listed. These are materials that they've printed on their machine it's possible, but the user experience across these materials is not the same. And uh, we are very transparent and upfront about that because it's important to understand like some of these materials have released parameters and some of them are on your own currently. So don't just assume that because the material is listed that it's expected to work very well, right? If you have a material that you're specifically in, in uh, interested in, uh, particularly if it's one that is an outlier, meaning, you know, it's not commonly printed on other machines of similar price or of similar build quality, ask them, you know, 
who is your vendor? Where can I get this material? Do, what is your user experience with this material? Do you have parts that you can show me and walk me through printing them in? And uh, if they can't, then I would consider that machine not, it's not able to print that material or it's not gonna be a plug and play, right? So if you have a desktop filament printer and, and it's saying that it can print peak, for example, I would ask a lot of questions because that's sort of an outlier, right? But yeah. if it says it can print pet G, okay, pretty much everything can. So I probably wouldn't be as skeptical of that. That actually brings up a couple thoughts that I have in mind. So we we are guilty of doing this um, because we have printers all over the place. But a lot of times like a 450, for example, a Fortis 450 can be set up to run uh, nylon 12 CF, the carbon fiber filled nylon. Yeah. Well, if we have one already printing and ready to go in Houston, that's where we get it printed. You know, we, we don't switch over our machines and not to say that it's so much of a hassle, um, but we are printing a benchmark on a machine that's been running the material Unless the customer asks us to change over, they want to understand the entirety of the process, which Michael Brenholt has actually done a really good job on our YouTube page of showing the ins and outs of those things. And because I think we're pretty much the only company that's showing that stuff. Possibly. I mean, so we've been in scenarios where a prospect is interested in printing both ASA and Ultim. And these are two very different thermoplastic materials. The print environments are very different. One is very low temp, one's high temp. And they have a budget and a need for something like a Fortis 900, which is the largest FDM printer in the Stratasys lineup. And it can print both of those materials. However, if we know that they're interested in moving back and forth between the materials, we will walk them through the process of switching between materials. And there is some downtime associated with that because if you're taking ASA out of a 900 and then loading up Ultim, you have to heat up the entire build chamber. It's in large build chamber. And uh, that can take some time. So we'll advise them like, if you're going to be moving back and forth between materials once a week or more than that, it might actually be in your best interest to get two separate machines that are smaller. So it's the same budget, but it would be a lot more efficient in terms of machine uptime to have two dedicated machines for those materials. And that's the sort of consultative discussion that you typically don't get from, uh, you know, smaller outfits. Name them. I'm not I'm just kidding. <laughs> I know. I'm just kidding. But it's important to just ask and understand the full experience of uh, purchasing, installing, operating, maintaining machines. Maintaining machines is a whole other uh, can of worms, right? I've seen scenarios where more advanced machines have uh, consumables or what you would imagine are cons considered consumables, but they're just wear items and there is an expectation of, you know, every 10, 20, 50 runs of this machine, you're going to have to replace this, 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 this component. And uh, it's a, so it's a significant contributor to the cost of ownership and cost of operation of a system, but not all companies are as upfront as you would hope that they are for things like that. Yeah. And to be clear, you know, we're talking production level systems at this point. Yeah. And they're, you know, just so you're not getting a, a, the wrong idea. Like, so some machines, especially in the Stratasys lineup, are designed to be hands off. You know, um, all of them are designed to have the recipes built in. So I can say that pretty confidently. Don't, don't you think, Tyler? It's, you're not messing with me, feed speeds, nozzle temperatures bed temperatures, any of that stuff with a Stratasys machine. However, 
you know, when you get into the production style systems, like Tyler is saying, you do have to account for uh, a little bit of hands-on work when you're talking material changeovers and things like that. Um, the machines are specifically hardware wise set up to be production style on a certain material. So as soon as you change material in order to get that production reliability, accuracy, that's um, an important part to consider is that there is a little bit of hands-on with material changeovers versus like an F370 where a material changeover, you don't do anything right. with the machine. But on an F370, the printhead has a, an expected lifespan, right? Yes. And yep. uh, so you should ask what that is, what the cost of a replacement head is, and you know what's the process of obtaining a replacement head, for example. Yeah. One of the things that, am I all right to change the subject? Sure. You all right with that? Yeah. You spilled, spilled your guts on that particular topic? Yeah. I think that was a good point. Um, we talked a little bit about accuracy. Mm -hmm. Accuracy versus resolution. Mm -hmm. So there's actually a good document. I think you can find this online. Stratasys may... I don't know. It has a controversial title. It's called the accuracy myth. Okay. And it's, it's, I think it's a white paper that Stratasys put out, um, some time ago. And it's actually really good at describing the differences between resolution and accuracy and kind of helps, helps you to not get too wrapped up in the battle of like a resolution battle from machine to machine. What was that? Yeah. I'm trying to download it because I'm not familiar with it. Was it Googleable? I looked up Stratasys accuracy myth and it, it does come up. Perfect. So if you get a chance and you're shopping for a system right now, whether industrial or hobby level, I think this is a good read because it's going to help you figure out, okay, like this is, this is what is listed. And hopefully using this episode as a tool, you can kind of walk through some of the things that, that you're going to see on a spec sheet and start to understand there's a little bit more to the story. And so I think the biggest thing to have in mind as a consumer is what geometries am I printing the most and what material do I plan to print the most of? I think that's very, very important to consider because you're not, even if your material, you have six options. It is so rare. Don't you think, Tyler, for someone to just be using all six of those materials all the time? Uh, yeah. Unless you're a it's, service bureau. And even then, they tend to prefer like two. Yeah, there's preferences. Three materials. Um, but I would say, in addition to that, you should consider what are your accuracy and tolerance needs and what are your throughput needs. Yeah. Actually, that's like... Why didn't I think of that? Tolerances are a big deal. Uh, I had a customer last week send me three different parts for benchmarks, potential benchmarks. They were, they're a job shop, laser company. Uh, mostly they do a lot of press breaking. It's similar to a customer I had not too long ago. And they sent me these drawings and they had tolerances listed on the drawing um, that are well within our capability. Mm -hmm. You know, we're talking 10,000 tolerances. However, the caveat is that they were not symmetrical oh, yeah. tolerances. So that can be difficult, right? Is it a deal breaker? Not necessarily. They just have to understand designing for additive. You want to, whenever you can, have symmetrical tolerances. Plus, plus right. or minus 5,000 is totally doable. Well, um, but when you go minus zero and plus 10 while you're still in that 10 thou range it's a different story yeah because it's unacceptable to go under so it's that's an important point you don't see asymmetric tolerances all that much i think in uh in the machining world i think symmetric is more common but that's not true for certain types of uh features like bearing races and and things like that, you you do tend to see more asymmetric. But I a, gave an asymmetric tolerance just recently. Yeah, so, so it does those happen. Fixture tables. 
it definitely happens. And it's usually interacting with something else in an assembly, right? Exactly. Um, But so you hand that to, well, actually, you tell me. You hand that to a laser outfit. How are they going to change their approach on a on a laser well the same way we would actually um they're just doing it in 2d so like they're they're getting a dxf yeah right? a line file essentially <clears throat> excuse me and they're going to make a cut well uh, asymmetric tolerances i think are most common with like slots and holes like you said they yeah. interact with another part where it's unacceptable to have a press fit it needs to at least fit snug and there's a tolerance on how loose it can be, right? Like we can accept a certain amount of looseness, but we cannot accept that the part can't be pushed in by hand. So for a laser company, they're working the same way we are, where it's like that laser is going to hit plus or minus 5,000 yep. on every line. Yep. Well, if the tolerance is um, negative zero, then I have to adjust my DXF on every feature that like, say it's a, for example, just a tabletop with a hundred holes in it. They're all the same size hole, a grid pattern. I have to highlight all those holes and adjust their size accordingly to where my symmetrical tolerance meets their uh, asymmetrical tolerance requirements so that I don't go negative zero. So I'll have to go plus or minus five thou, for example, so that I don't go under. Right. So in our cam tool, we would call that an allowance. Like we would manually, as a cam programmer, uh, we would add an allowance to those features. Uh, we wouldn't necessarily have to alter the, the DXF or the CAD file, but we would offset to account for that. But in the printing world, you really, in my opinion, you really want to be printing from a file that's designed and drawn to nominal. Uh, because it is much more difficult, if not impossible, to change and add allowances per feature. Yes and no. I actually, so I experimented a little with GrabCAD print the other day. Uh-huh. And when you're working with a native file, so that gives you the ability to have selectable faces that are bigger than just the triangulation of a just a little facet. Um I can actually highlight if it's a hole, for example, or a counterbore or something like that. I can select the face, uh, a cylindrical face, and I can tweak that using it, it's cheating, but I can use the the uh, custom hole tool, I think, or uh, the threaded insert tool, and do a custom threaded insert, and I can actually give the exact dimension that I'm trying to achieve. Yeah. There. So I can change the geometry. Obviously that would be in like be hard to do one one by one. And in it's in this one specific scenario, right? Where you have you happen to have GrabCAD print, you happen to have a hole feature, and you happen to have a tool where you can adjust hole size. But if that was a slot or if it if the feature wasn't uh didn't come in as a as a whole, where you have a single yeah. face, it, you really cannot count on the operators to do Why this. Why do you got to be such a downer? I'm not a downer. I'm <laughs> I'm just setting expectations of I just, <laughs> printing operators I just, are not even used to thinking in this term, in these in these ways, right? We don't generally well, look your at there, drawings. Them are fighting words. Mm, well, uh, I think I think the biggest thing to note is that you don't want to create a separate part file that's a 3d print only part file based on your production part mm, well i don't I want to make adjustments in GrabCAD or in the slicer if possible no and just have for a production part no way you want the cad to be representative as much as possible to the printed part if and you're in a production if environment, if you know that if you know that your printer's printing five thou over all the time, you don't want to go adjust your production CAD file to be five thou under. You want your CAD file to match 
the end result. So when you do QC and all that stuff, it all matches up. Mm. Well, oftentimes you have multiple configurations of a CAD file. So in real, that's what I'm saying. When you grab CAD print, you would have your printable file that will give you the represented, a representation, a more accurate one of your CAD. I think that, uh, in specific, specific instances, maybe, but at that point <laughs> your grab CAD file would have to be a, your job file would also have to be in your PDM system and a protected file for sure. That's uh, why I'm saying, but how, okay. So how would you do this with a casted part? If you were in production and you were doing a casted part. I model the end part. I don't model the, you, you probably have to have two different, you know, depending on how your cast, your casted part is coming out, right? Like if you're doing some cam work to post-process a, uh, some parting lines or whatever off, you may need to have a different model that's going to represent the casted component. Right. But I still think that your, when you design a part dimensionally, you're designing what the end result ought to be. You're not designing based on manufacture. Eh, you are. I think that's the wrong set of words. I think. Are you getting what I'm saying? I am. And uh, you're picking I up think what we I'm just disagree. <laughs> I'm saying in certain cases, you're going to need m multiple versions of that file. And it's best, in my opinion, to have your controlled document in the CAD and not doing weird esoteric things in the print software. Yeah. So if you are using something like SolidWorks where you have configurations, your one file could have a configuration that is uh, your final yeah. result. And uh, you could have an, a configuration that's as printed. Yes. File reduction is always the goal. That's all I'm saying. I think the bottom line yeah. of what I'm trying to say is if you can find a way to reduce the number of files, especially in a company that maybe doesn't have PDM yet, that can be hugely beneficial to, to avoid having a CAD file that's for 3D printing with the same part number as your as intended part yeah. can be beneficial. And if, That's you, all I'm saying. if you're in a scenario where you have, you have issues and you have to go back and trace where those issues may have arisen, it feels easier and simpler and more straightforward to have one spot. I'm going to go back to the CAD file versus having to go back to something like a job file or a slice file and try to figure out how was this processed and could that have led to tolerance issues? It's not as straightforward there. But in some cases, you do have to do stuff in the print file. So it's a tough situation. Yeah. We just went off on a tangent there. Yeah, we did. We? I I wonder what people think about um, asymmetric tolerances versus designing to nominal just in general. I can tell you what I think. Designing What's, to nominal. Explain that a little bit more. Well, basically designing so that the tolerance is, is symmetric. And then just listing one overarching you could have a, you could have a specific tolerance for a feature but did you design it and draw it to be symmetric or asymmetric and uh i would be really interested in hearing from very seasoned experienced designers on that because i think probably it's a philosophical thing that people have uh, that's a good question I, I bet in the machinist world, it has a lot more to do with, and uh, maybe maybe not even like uh, automated machines, but more like manual mills and yeah. uh, manual lathes, because you can creep up on a tolerance and measure. Yeah. For example, if you're boring a hole, you can creep to the the eventual hole size so you can start yeah. undersize and creep up on it and i feel like that's important to have if you have an asymmetrical tolerance you might be more prone to utilize it when you know that the manufacturing method is going to be a manual process and the and the scenario might change depending on your 
relationship with the machinist because some machinists, <laughs> right, it's true. will will look it's at totally a tolerance true. and think, okay, if I'm in the tolerance window, I'm good. It's a good part. And they're not going to spend any more time on it. Whereas other machinists will really try to hit that. Whatever the value is called out, they're going to try to hit that value. And so if you know they behave that way, then uh, you know a specific number that they're really, really going to put effort in to try to hit. I'm all about aiming for the middle. Works in bowling, works in machining, aim for the middle. Yeah, In bowling, you have to go right off the middle. <laughs> Leave it to you, man. <laughs> Leave it to you. Anyway, we're we're probably coming up on time. In fact, yeah, I actually are. have a meeting that I am traveling for today. So that's exciting. Um, but I think we covered pretty much everything we wanted to cover. We had some good arguments. Mm-hmm. If anybody wants mm-hmm. to clarify any of those, um, feel free to shoot us an email. Yep. And can I end with a funny story? Sure. I did something on a Zoom call yesterday that's really embarrassing. So I'm this is an admission of guilt. Okay. If anybody in the company listens to this, they'll know it was me now. So we had a company-wide meeting on some of our benefits yesterday. And this host, man, my my first inclination is to play the blame game. So I blame the host for not (laughs) silencing everyone on arrival. I feel like we're a year into this, you know? People, hosts should know. You don't let people come in to a big group meeting with their mics on it's definitely their fault oh anyway i come into this meeting it was at one o'clock meeting i come in like two minutes late and i'm i'm listening it's perfect the guy's cruising through his his uh slideshow and i do a closed mouth burp you know it wasn't like but it was you know what i'm saying (laughs) it was one of those and I hear the host kind of fumble and I can hear him smiling <laughs> as he's talking. And I'm like, no way he heard that. And I hover my mouse real quick and I see that my mic is live. I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. Company wide. So I hurry and mute and I'm just feeling so stupid. I'm so embarrassed. I'm like, please say that that did not highlight my screen when that sound came through and everyone saw my name pop up like seconds later. Someone in our company. <laughs> was it Jeb? <laughs> it was Jeb. It actually was Jeb. Jeb's getting the blame for everything. Jeb starts recording for some content, <laughs> right? So he's doing his own thing while the meeting is still up and live on his laptop. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't realize it. So he's sitting there narrating like a YouTube video or something. He's reading off a script. And everyone's like, oh my gosh, everyone's just kind of like looking at each other, like, what do we do? And then someone's like, Jeb, Jeb, <laughs> on the call. <laughs> everyone's yelling at him, trying to, and there, there's like, I think there was something close to a hundred people yeah. on this meeting. And he just keeps going. And the hosts, one of the hosts finally mutes Jeb, <laughs> Jebediah. <laughs> and I was like, oh, thank goodness he upstaged me. So if anyone listened to that, I was the burp guy. The shadow burper. (sighs) But the heat got taken off me. Thanks to Jebediah. He saved you. Yep. Anyway, that's my funny funny story. Yep. All right. Cool. Well, uh, have a good Friday. Have a good weekend. And uh, good episode. All All right. Talk to you later. Take care.